Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you feel the same way about communism? <sighs> I mean, See, when... it's like this is where it gets no, really No, I don't. Dangerous. I mean, if you have a, if you have a, if you have a political ideology, and I'm talking about historically, I mean, historically during the Cold War, then communism was a threat. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Today, we're discussing the economy, a tragic bombing in Afghanistan, and the first native presidential forum. In our main segment, we're going to talk about the protest in Portland over the weekend, and there's a lot of news about the Proud Boys and Antifa, and we're going to break it all down for you. And we'll end, as always, with what's on our minds outside politics. But before we get started, we are mere days, mere days, I tell you, away from the launch of our tour, Nuance Nation. We are kicking it off Thursday in San Mateo, California, with Reverend Penny Nixon. And then Saturday, we'll be in Thousand Oaks, California. I'm so excited about these shows. We are going to be sharing our thoughts on Democracy 2.0, some big changes we'd like to see. 
We're going to be having amazing guests. We're selling tickets right now for our Louisville show where we'll be talking with Amy McGrath, who's running against Mitch McConnell for the Senate. So, so excited. So, so, so excited. So run, don't walk. Go get your tickets, y'all. And tickets for Dallas and Washington, D.C. and our new surprise Surprise. stop in Michigan will go on sale soon. We'll let you know and you can keep an eye on our website, fancypoliticsshow.com to find all of that. Sarah, I don't know if you've noticed, but the president wants everyone to understand that the economy is fantastic. Do not pay attention to anything around you. Do not look behind the curtain. The economy is great. Um, for somebody that understands marketing and making good tape for people, you would think saying there's no recession, everything looks great, there's no recession, he would realize that's going to make really good tape for next year if we start getting increasingly bad economic news like just don't you don't say things like that it's like no new taxes you don't make the tape for your opponent and I feel like that's what he absolutely did I mean thou dost protest too much when you send every person you have out to every media platform available to go it's fine it's fine it's fine everybody it's fine it's fine hey it's fine it's fine be cool it's fine I mean come on there is something that makes a little bit of sense about that strategy in that a lot of what happens in the economy is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. So right now, business investment has slowed, but consumer spending is really strong. And consumer spending can get pulled back really quickly if people fear a recession. So there's some logic in saying, be cool, everyone. We have to keep doing what we're doing if we want to keep having good results. We do have strong job growth still, but there's a lot going on around the world that is cause for concern for investors and for all of us. There are some issues that this administration has created that concern all of us, and we have this problem with the bond market. So what you need to know is the growth in China has slowed. Why? There is a tariff war between the United States and China. Our farmers are getting hammered. A lot of investors are worried about where this is going, and the Chinese government seems to have decided they're going to wait for us to have an election over here before we resolve this whole situation. I was reading an article about the tariffs finally affecting California and the wine market, and this wine grower was like, we spent 10 years trying to build the relationship in China And it's just all been for naught. They've seen a 30% reduction in wine exports to China. And here's the thing. Yes, consumer spending is strong. Yes, the job market is strong. But I don't need to be an economist, and I don't think any of our listeners need to be an economist, to understand that we are very tied up with China We are very tied up with the globe. So when the president himself acknowledges that there are recessions going on other places or recession fears in Europe and that China is really suffering with our tariffs, that's going to affect us. We're not an island. You don't get to just wish it and make it so. Our economies are related. Everything I use says made in China. So there's no way to acknowledge the slowdown in China, the problems in Europe, And to live in the global economy, we all see every single day and think, oh, we're going to be fine. It's fine. We'll just it doesn't matter what's going on across the world. It won't affect us. Come on. 
And, you know, the president could talk to us like we're grownups about this. This is always a frustration that I have. Presidents impact the economy, certainly. And they are one piece of a much larger and more complex puzzle. You know, the fact that Germany's economy contracted in the last quarter is not Donald Trump's fault. He could talk about it in a way that respects all of us instead of just saying, hey, pay no attention, everything's amazing, and I made it so. He didn't make it so, and he isn't causing the full collapse, although these tariffs are a huge component, I think, of what's going on everywhere. I just wish we could have a real conversation about the fact that the economy changes and the administration plays some part, but you can't do that when the thing that you have to run on is telling people that they must vote for him whether they like him or not, or their 401ks will collapse. It's just... That quote is so gross, and they keep playing it over and over again. It makes me so angry every time. Here's the other thing. The president has more at his disposal than just the bully pulpit and the Federal Reserve. And that is all he seems to believe he has control over. Pressure the Federal Reserve, which is supposed to be an independent body, and has limited tools at their capacity. They are powerful tools, and I believe the Federal Reserve is doing the best they can do. But you have more options than pressure the Federal Reserve and act like the sky isn't falling. And even tariffs. There are ways for an administration to, I don't know, I'm just throwing some ideas out here work with Congress to help our economy, to invest in infrastructure, to invest in education, to do all these things that can help grow our economy in a sustainable way, as opposed to just sales pitch, sales pitch, sales pitch, Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve. I just, it's so frustrating to me. I think it requires a bit of humility in the face of global forces that (laughs) the president seems incapable of mustering. And I do think that all of us need to get educated on these issues. You did a great little segment on Instagram, Sarah, about the yield curve. How many of us really understand how the national debt works? How many of us really understand how the bond market works? Not a lot, right? And Mm -hmm. learning more about those things will help us put the news in greater context as well. You can check that out in our Instagram highlights if you'd like to. It's with the little circles at the top of our profile, and it says yield curve question mark. So if you have a question mark about the yield curve, feel free to check that out. I think what's interesting in the face of all this economic conversation is news that came out over the weekend about the business roundtable. It's a collection of CEOs, and they basically got together and said, I think it's time for us to acknowledge that our only job is not to make a profit. Now, you know that every in council, all the lawyers everywhere shudder because their fiduciary duty is, in fact, to make money for their shareholders. But acknowledging that because people don't trust the government, because there are concerns about the global economy, the impact of the global economy on our climate, the rise of authoritarianism, all these different concerns we have that we do look to big corporations to pay attention to this stuff and to exert their influence where they can. And I think that's such an interesting thing to think about in the face of perhaps a slowing economy is what roles giant corporations have with regards to political issues beyond just 
turning a profit for their shareholders. I think that's just such an interesting piece of the puzzle as we look at all this. I think a difficulty when you think about the duty to maximize shareholder value is what time frame? This is what we talked about on one of our last episodes when the Trump administration is looking at the cost of environmental action. They're looking at it in a really small window of time. And I think often when corporations are saying we'll have to squeeze every dollar out for shareholders in this quarter, it is at the long term expense of the entity. Right. And so to me, a a really interesting conversation to have is what does that fiduciary duty mean what is the time frame? And do corporate officers have discretion to figure out what that time frame is? I think they should. I think that that is a conversation that's really healthy within a lot of organizations. How do we put ourselves in a bigger picture so that over the long term, we have a more successful entity? And I do believe that there is nothing mutually exclusive about long-term healthy profits and a long-term healthier society. Well, I think it just reflects a changing culture. It reflects the idea that, especially in our generation, we don't want to work somewhere where greed is the only motivator. I mean, we are long, long past greed is good. And people want to work somewhere. People want to support businesses. People want to be a part of organizations, either with their dollars or their time or whatever, that seem to acknowledge their values, that seem to see the problems in our world and want to try to fix them and not just make a dime. And I think that's really positive. I don't think the corporations are going to save us, but (laughs) I do think that's a positive movement. I don't think any one entity can, quote, save us. I do think a greater contribution from the private sector is really important. And we're going to have that contribution It's just a question of what the effect is going to be, right? There is going to be a positive or negative influence from the private sector. So for a bunch of CEOs to say out loud, hey, maybe we should do better. That's great. That's important. Speaking of time to do better, in a really positive development, there is going to be a native presidential forum in Iowa taking place on Monday, so yesterday and today. You can live stream it. You'll also be able to find Monday's forum if you missed it. Nine candidates will be there. Mark Charles, the native candidate who's running as an independent, who we've had on the podcast. Also, Marianne Williamson, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Steve Bullock, John Delaney, Julian Castro, Bernie Sanders, and Bill de Blasio. And this is the first time we've ever had a forum where all the questions are going to be exclusively focused on native issues. I'm so glad Mark Charles is going to be there. I think that's important. This forum is named after Frank Lemaire, who was a party leader and activist. He demanded reforms to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I caught a little bit of it before we started recording today. And the questions from the audience were thoughtful. They were important. They were about topics that we do not hear enough about. I listened to a woman ask a really heartfelt question about homelessness in Native populations and how that leads to increased levels of violence that no one seems to pay attention to. So I'm really thrilled that this is happening. I'm thrilled that this many candidates are there. I wish they were all there. I don't understand anybody taking a pass mm-hmm. on this one, especially as you read. I mean, there's there's the part of this that is about we really need to do better by this population. We owe it to them to do better. There's also the political reality that you're seeing more articles written about that an increase in Native turnout could drastically change the results of the election in important states. 
I'm glad there is some acknowledgement of that. And I agree. I think everyone should be there, but this is a heck of a good start. Before we move on, we wanted to acknowledge the truly horrendous attack in Afghanistan over the weekend. There was a huge wedding in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, and a suicide bomber was able to enter the venue and detonate and killed 63 people and injured over 200 others. Details of this are heartbreaking. The New York Times has a piece that talks about how this couple was going to wait longer to get married. They decided to go ahead because life in Afghanistan is so uncertain. The family wanted them to have a really small ceremony in the home because they feared something like this happening. Mm. The couple wanted to celebrate with their friends. It's just awful. There are quotes in this article from people in Afghanistan about how you can't do anything without fearing for your life. The Islamic State says that it's responsible for this. They said that the bomber is from Pakistan. The timing of this is part of why it's captured so much attention in addition to those just tragic details. The United States is in the midst of finalizing an agreement to withdraw the about 14,000 troops that we still have in Afghanistan 18 years after originally bringing troops to that country. Afghan officials, and I know this is going to sound crazy after I said we've been there 18 years, but Afghan officials are worried that we are rushing this process and that the plan is not realistic. Our negotiators want the Taliban to agree that they will not support any terrorist groups. And as that discussion is underway, you have ISIS coming in, doing this Mm -hmm. tragic bombing and claiming responsibility and and bringing up Pakistan, which, as we know, is a powder keg in and of itself, especially with what's happening in Kashmir and the conflict with India. And so this is a really important moment in terms of diplomatic relations and a moment where administration is going to have to think very carefully about what the priorities are because there are a number of competing priorities here. I can't think of an American who doesn't want our troops to come home from from Afghanistan. And we also have to consider what the impact of that will be. Before we move on to our compliments, I wanted to share a piece of listener feedback. This is from Darren. He emailed us about our August 6th episode where we were talking about gun control. He is a spinal cord injury survivor and paraplegic, and he said, Sarah, I love the passion that you exuded when speaking about gun control. However, one part of your speech came off extremely ableist. When you were speaking about the man who was walking slowly into the grocery store and shuffling his feet, you perpetuated the myth that disabled people cannot do the same things that able-bodied people can do. You also said that you felt sorry for him. Disabled people will typically tell you that they simply want your understanding but never your pity. As you may or may not know, we have to fight every day for the right to simply exist and move through the world. It doesn't help when people with a platform use it to maintain the false notion that we disabled people cannot do everything that anyone else can do. I'm a liberal Democrat and my personal beliefs align with yours when it comes to guns, but there are many disabled people who own firearms and have concealed carry permits. They must prove, just as everyone else, that they're able to handle a firearm safely. I know you are angry and passionate, but it would be nice if you could say something to your disabled listeners to address this. I'm sure I'm not the only one who noticed. I just wanted to reach out and give my perspective as a disabled person and let you know that I love listening to you guys. I thought Darren's message was so kind, and I absolutely apologize if I hurt anyone with my words. That was definitely not my intention. And I don't ever want to perpetuate harmful ideas or myths or anything about disabled people. And so I just wanted to apologize for my words. Speaking of gun control, Beth, who are you complimenting this week? I would like to compliment Beto O'Rourke. 
So Beto released a very comprehensive plan about Mm -hmm. efforts to combat gun violence. And the next day, he paid $10 to get into a gun show in Arkansas, where he spent time talking with people selling guns and buying guns. And he vehemently disagreed with some, and he found some common ground with others. And he talked to the press about how important it is not to write anybody off and to engage everyone in this conversation. And the NRA made big fun of him on Twitter about it, and he responded very appropriately to them. They said something like, when you're president, haha, have you seen the polls? And he said, yeah, I've seen the polls. Seventy percent of Americans think that we should have universal background checks. And I just feel like in the tragedy that took place in El Paso, something shook loose for Beto O'Rourke mm-hmm. that brought him back around to kind of the soulful and sometimes angry and always well-spoken candidate that he was for the United States Senate in Texas. And I'm really happy to see it. You know, Beto is not my preferred candidate in this race, but I admire this version of him. And I'm happy that he's coming into his, his own here around an issue that is really important to me and a lot of Americans. A listener shared his Instagram post that contained the major points of his gun control plan. And I'm looking over them. I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the last one is a mandatory buyback of assault weapons. And I was like, I see you, Beto. I see you, brother, going out there, speaking strongly, acknowledging we have to do all these things we absolutely agree with. There's no reason we can't do universal background checks. And also, we have too many guns. And so something's got to give. I see you. I like your plan, Beto. I like your plan. And I love that he went to the gun show. I would hope that with this many people running for president, more folks follow his example and just say, I am not going to be bound by traditional campaign advice in a race that is clearly not a traditional race. I'm just going to use my voice Mm -hmm. in its best, most authentic form and let the chips fall. Because this is an act of service to the country. What Beto is doing right now makes the country better. Absolutely. And he's definitely rejecting traditional campaign advice because he basically said, I'm not going to go back to Iowa or New Hampshire. I'm not going to do that traditional retail politics. I'm going to go other places that get ignored where the people that I want to serve and the populations most in need are. So I respect that. Who's on your mind for a compliment, Sarah? I am going to compliment the state of California. The whole thing, actually, no. I'm going to compliment two specific groups. So as we've talked about in the past on Pantsuit Politics, for me, one of the biggest issues when we talk about police violence and we particularly talk about the deaths of black men and women across the country, the reason that we don't get the conclusion we want, the reason we so often see no legal charges or no prosecutions against the police is because the legal standard for the use of force is incredibly easy to meet. The current standard lets officers use deadly force if they have a reasonable fear. Okay, well, reasonable is a pretty easy standard to meet. So California just passed a law and it was signed by the governor that would bar police from using deadly force unless it is necessary to defend against an imminent threat of death. So we're going from reasonable, which... Very easy to meet, too necessary. And the reason I'm complimenting them is not just because they're 
changing the standard, which I think is what we need to do if we want to see different results with regards to particularly the prosecution of officers who use deadly force. I'm complimenting them because what happened in the state of California is you had law enforcement officials who were opposed, civil rights activists who were in favor, and nobody had the votes to get it done. And you know what they did? They compromised. And law enforcement officials ended up dropping their opposition to this law through a compromise in which everybody agreed to drop the explicit definition of necessary. So it's going to be a while until we know exactly how necessary plays out. But basically, by dropping the explicit definition and leaving it to the courts and let's see, giving them a lot of room, I think, was the idea. Because that can that can we can finesse that over time through the court system as opposed to putting it in the legislation. And really, I'm sure, as law enforcement felt, tying their hands. But I think moving forward on this, seeing that this was one of the big issues, both groups coming together, law enforcement being able to reach a compromise and say, we realize that this standard is a problem. Let's see where we can come to an agreement moving towards this necessary to defend against imminent threat of death instead of just reasonable, I think is such positive movement on this issue and will hopefully really lead to change, lead to better training, and of course, lead to fewer deaths. Good job, California. Good job on both sides of the aisle in trying to work out a compromise and getting some movement surrounding this issue. I think everyone is safer when there is greater trust between communities and law enforcement. And I Mm -hmm. love that law enforcement here recognized that them being at the table on this was important because I sincerely believe that fewer deaths at the hands of police officers will make all of our police officers safer, too. Absolutely. So this is a great development. Our listener Kayla asked for us to talk about white supremacy and Antifa and how they are covered in the media. So next up, that's what we're going to do. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. reached out asking about the coverage of what happened in Portland this weekend. And I think there are some important terms to define before we get into this conversation. And some of these terms are things that we don't think about very often. So America is a liberal democracy, not liberal in the sense of the way we talk about liberalism and conservatism, but liberal in the classically liberal sense. We believe in elections between and among multiple parties. We believe in separating powers through distinct branches of government. We think we should have an open society that's based on the rule of law and private property ownership and an economy that's based on the market and civil liberties and political freedom. And that is stuff that has just been in the water here for so long that I think most people in my generation have just kind of taken it for granted. So in the classically liberal sense, both Republicans and Democrats usually fall under that umbrella. And that's a big shift that we're seeing right now. So when we talk about liberal and conservative, for most of my lifetime, the distinction has meant not that anyone doesn't want that open society based on the rule of law, separation of powers, free election situation. It's been that Liberals, liberal Democrats, want a more mixed economy, so they're comfortable with some government intervention in the economy. There's an emphasis on social justice among liberals. And on the other side of the aisle, conservatives are really interested in a free market and are willing to defend some economic inequality as a consequence of that free market. They want a strong state to defend the nation and enforce the laws, but they want that state to stay mostly out of the economy and they value stability. So this is all vastly oversimplified, but that's really, I think, the only way we can condense it for this discussion. So just put in your mind 
classical liberalism as sort of the American system that most of us take for granted. And now let's contrast that with fascism. So when people talk about the political spectrum, you have a general left, you have a general right. And so even when you're talking about conservative and Democrats in the ways that Beth was just describing, you're still generally on the left side of the political spectrum. If you go all the way to the right side of the political spectrum, then you get fascism, radical right-wing, authoritarian, ultranationalist, dictatorial, suppression of opposition, control of law and order, control of the media. And so then you get the fascist, particularly as defined through the World War II era with Mussolini in Italy, Hitler in Germany. They really oppose globalism, international capitalism, but also socialism and communism. And most fascists want capitalism within their borders so that their countries can be economically self-sufficient, don't have to depend on any other countries or any other form of global trade or globalism. Fascism has historically been linked to very violent, aggressively racist approaches, usually but not always, anti-Semitic, imperialistic. There's an idealization of hyper-masculinity, an obsession with the military, and fascists are vehemently opposed to liberal democracies. You can be racist without being fascist, but it's kind of hard to be fascist without being racist. So it's important to understand what fascism is so that you can understand Antifa, which is a contraction of anti-fascist. So when we were researching this episode... I listened to a lot of interviews with Mark Bray. He wrote Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. Now, listen, this guy was like, he's a Dartmouth professor and he was really involved in Occupy Wall Street. So he has a perspective, no doubt, but he's still a historian. And it was really interesting to hear. He did lots and lots of interviews and lots of historical research to hear sort of how the anti-fascist movement sprung up, particularly post-World War II. I think for so many of us who've lived in this world where fascism is described as this awful thing and we're acknowledging just the depths and horror of what happened under fascist leaders in Germany, particularly with Nazis and with the concentration camps, it's hard to realize, like, in the immediate post-war period, you had Jewish soldiers coming back to Britain and having to watch all these fascist groups stand on the street corners and say, we didn't go far enough. World War II, they should have gone further in World War II. I mean, it wasn't, like, you had a lot, a, a lot of fascist groups and a lot of growth with fascism. You would think in World War II it would have been like, absolutely not. But that's not really what was happening. And, you know, in liberal democracy, there's this approach of we will either reason them out of it, the police will protect us, or we can sort of legislate our way around the problems of fascism. And I think what you see, particularly in the historical anti-fascist movement, is this idea that, like, no, that's not going to work. You don't reason someone out of fascism. You don't depend on the police because often the police are susceptible and sympathetic to the messages of strong law and order that often comes from fascist movements. And because government sometimes is limited, especially in a liberal democracy where you have an emphasis on free speech. And so what happened is these people were like, we're not going to depend on these and we're going to use direct action. 
We're not going to try to reason people out of it. We're not going to try to use the marketplace of ideas or the legislative or political process. It's going to be direct action. And so at the time, it was like this police policy that if you if you upended their podium at these fascist group gatherings once, they wouldn't protect them again, basically. So they would go in, they would turn over their podium, and they would just sort of disrupt and intimidate these groups. And they were largely successful. And it's not like you see sort of this anti-fascist movement consistently from the 1940s on. You see it bubble up when people feel like the government in particular, is not doing a good enough job combating fascism. And so I don't think it's particularly surprising, given that historical context, that you see people, you know, the distrust of the government is on both sides of the aisle. And if people feel like the government's not going to get the job done, they're ignoring this fascist threat inside our country. And we're not just going to reason people out of it. We have to do something else. Then you see these groups using direct action and violence to disrupt and intimidate and try to shut down these fascist groups. So Antifa, as we understand it in America, we started kind of learning about this as Americans in 2017 as Antifa showed up in Charlottesville and as Antifa is showing up in Portland, it's a really loose association of people. You're not going to, like, click onto an org chart for Antifa on Google. <laughs> no. Some folks are basically spending all of their free time monitoring the dark recesses of the Internet, trying to understand where fascist threats are growing. And... Some people are in the streets with baseball bats and mm-hmm. milkshakes that they're ready to throw at conservative bloggers. There there has been actual violence from Antifa. To put that mm-hmm. violence in perspective, it is an exceptionally small percentage of violence related to ideology in the United States. The threat is there and the violence is real. It is much less than the threat mm-hmm. coming from radical right-wing violence right now. And so let's talk about that for a second. You probably heard in relation to the Portland protests over the last week about the Proud Boys. The Proud Boys are neo-fascist, meaning you combine historical fascism with xenophobia, anti-immigrant, and populist sentiments. So this is a radical right-wing group that admits only men and promotes violence. They think that we need more punching. Like, that's part of what their founder says all the time. He wants to see more punching. This group started in 2016. The name is based, and I swear to God, I'm not not making this up. The name is based on a song that was cut from Aladdin in the Disney version and brought back for the stage version. That is where the Proud Boys name comes from. They are looking for a society that centers men. They want what they call enforced monogamy. They say that feminism is a cancer. And they have an initiation process that includes hazing. So in the first step of this process, they take a loyalty oath and declare that they are proud Western chauvinists. Okay, and they say, I refuse to apologize for creating the modern world. Then, also, I'm not making this up, they get punched while they recite the names of five breakfast cereals. Then the third step is getting a tattoo and promising not to masturbate. They swear off (laughs) masturbation and pornography because they're supposed to get off the couch and go meet women. And then the fourth is getting into a major fight for the cause. 
So the guy who started this whole thing, Gavin McInnes, and his followers think that there are 10 ways to save America. These are the 10 things the Proud Boys want. They want to abolish prisons, give each American a gun, legalize drugs, end welfare, close the borders to illegal immigrants, outlaw censorship, venerate the housewife, glorify the entrepreneur, shut down the government, and declare, quote, the West is the best. Well, aren't they just the Elizabeth Warren of the alt-right with their plan? Bless their sweethearts. Well, they very much do not want to be affiliated with the alt-right because they say the alt-right is more about racism than they are. They are more about thinking that Western male-dominated culture is the best. Please give them the mantle of all misogyny and assign racism squarely to the alt-right. That's what the Proud Boys want us to all believe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because racism and misogyny are not, you know, Completely related. Yeah. Also with the Proud Boys in Portland were the Three Percenters, and this is an organization of people who really like guns. And they say they exist to stand against the government when the government violates the Constitution. So here in Portland, you have the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters coming out because right-wing media and its friends in the United States Senate and the White House Mm -hmm. have been talking— About wanting to declare Antifa a domestic terror organization, which is a classification that does not exist under United (laughs) States law. I love that. That was my I heard an interview with a guy. He's a journalist now and he used to work for, I think, the State Department or the National Intelligence Agency. And they asked him about this and he was like, um, and he was like trying his best to be like Mr. Neutral Journalist. And he was he was basically like I don't know what he's talking about. Like, this is not a thing. He just made that up. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not funny. It just was kind of funny. It's not a thing. Not and a so thing. Antifa has a stronghold in Portland. It's one of the most active and organized Antifa groups in the United States. And so when the Proud Boys show up, so will Antifa, because this is a clash of fascists admitted fascist and anti-fascist, and both of these groups endorse violence as a tactic very unapologetically, and that is why there has been concern about these groups squaring off. But this is probably going to keep happening, especially as the right-wing media and its friends in the United States Senate and the White House keep talking about Antifa. Antifa is the scapegoat, right? Don't look at the Mm -hmm. white supremacists. Take a look over here at Antifa. Now, please do not read my comments as an endorsement of Antifa. I do not endorse Antifa. I am a classical liberal. It's a desperate desire to create an equivalency where there is none. That's right. Yeah, I just think that there is this, what these groups are trying to do is to push them into violence. And honestly, it really reminds me a little bit of sort of the narrative you hear around Hong Kong, there's this approach or the way people talk about protesters and the way that the narrative goes is that the second there's any violence on the side of the protesters, that's it. You're terrorists. Nothing you said is valid. We will discount you wholly and completely because you resorted to violence. And I believe in nonviolence. And I believe in the political successes of that approach. And also, I do not believe that the presence of any violence in a protest, especially if it is in reaction to the other side or 
you know, whatever. I just I don't know why we've adopted that narrative that the presence of any violence or direct action on the there's lots of violence present in the history of political movements in the United States, political movements that we hold up as successful that had a lot of impact over the course of our country and the idea that the presence of any violence means you're a terrorist i don't know i'm not buying it well i think that this rush to label antifa a terrorist organization sort of makes the point that the slide toward fascism is more rapid than most of us want to acknowledge mm-hmm this, again, is not an endorsement of Antifa's tactics. I do not believe that we should sacrifice free speech in the interest of suppressing fascism. I believe that free speech has to be part of the, the solution in addition to being part of the problem. And it is. Free speech is complex, right? And free speech leads us to a lot of dark places. But I believe that it is the only sustainable way to move us beyond those dark places as well. So I very much do not like or appreciate what Antifa does. I also think it is clear when you have a government moving to suppress that opposition so forcefully, it is doing the thing that Antifa is accusing it of doing. Mm -hmm. Because when you talk about designating a group as a terrorist organization, Despite that not existing as a thing for domestic groups, what you're saying is, I want to use the law of the United States against people, not based on what they do, but what they are and what they care about. And that is in direct opposition to our criminal justice system. We are supposed to be a system, and we get this wrong all the time, but we are supposed to be a system where it is your act, your completed act, that gets you on the radar of law enforcement, and that gets you in trouble with law enforcement. And if we are becoming a society where your affiliation with a group like Antifa starts to put you under the threat of surveillance or arrest without having completed an act, I think that's really concerning. I think the difficulty is I absolutely want you under surveillance or even arrest because of your association with white nationalism and white supremacy. Like, I don't have any problem with that. I think that we have to acknowledge when we talk about free speech and particularly when we talk about political ideologies that they are not all equal. And when you talk about fascism— when you look back at the history of fascism, Mark Bray, the guy who wrote this book, talks a lot about like Mussolini's first meeting had 50 people. And then a year later, he had 250,000 people present in his organizations. And so the appeal of fascism and the threat of fascism is different. It's not just, oh, we'll all step into the marketplace of ideas and see what floats up or we will wait for everyone to decide this is harmful and we'll all ignore it until it goes away. I think that's a really, I'm not saying that's what you're arguing, but I think that that is a really dangerous approach with fascism. And we see it over and over and over again in history that we thought, we'll just ignore these authoritarianisms until they go away and they grow and grow and grow in the dark recesses while we hope for people to be reasoned out of them. And so I think that it is difficult 
to work through how to best combat this rise in white nationalism, the rise in fascism, the rise in authoritarianism. And I'm not entirely sure that direct action, and I do want to kind of distinguish between direct action and violence. I think you can have direct action without violence towards human beings. And I think that sort of disruptive direct action has a place in the marketplace of ideas that it's not, you know, it's not a state restriction on free speech. It's a consequence of free speech. And I do think it can be really useful and effective in the face of growing ideologies like fascism, like white nationalism. And there are lots of people doing direct action against mm-hmm. white nationalism who are not part of Antifa. You know, right. Heather Heyer, who lost her life in Charlottesville, was not part of Antifa. She was a person taking direct disruptive action during those protests. So there is a way to do that. I want to go back to what you said about wanting to put white nationalists and supremacists under that kind of surveillance. For me, and this is hard to say, like none of this is easy to talk about. For me, I think I still need that ideology plus an act. So if you are a white supremacist and you are stockpiling weapons, or if you are a white supremacist and you are posting threats online, then I think law enforcement needs to come into the room. And that is a circumstance where perhaps it would be a good idea, as I think Pete Buttigieg has suggested and and other candidates, I'm sure, maybe we do need a classification as a domestic terrorist organization or just a terrorist organization, and we eliminate the boundaries around that because of the reality of the world that we live in. I do think it's scary, though, when we start assigning labels to people and letting those labels govern what their rights are vis-a-vis the state. And so as much as I abhor white supremacy in every form, I think that it needs to lead to some action before we say, okay, now you are going to start to lose some of your civil liberties. That said, I feel like a major problem we have right now and that that really surfaces in the coverage of these clashes in Portland is that we think respecting free speech means that we can't condemn and shame people. Mm-hmm. And this is the one place where I think condemnation and shame are really important. So fascism right now is not growing in the dark recesses of the internet. It is, but it's also growing right open in the sunlight. And to not have explicit condemnation of groups like the Proud Boys from leadership, to me, it is it is the biggest abandonment of responsibility and really the biggest abandonment of the constitutional oath our leaders take. Because this is a threat to classical liberal democracy, and that is what our country is founded on. I don't understand how you can say you want to uphold the Constitution and at the same time be running around scoring political points by talking about classifying Antifa as a terrorist organization and winking and nodding at openly fascist movements. Yeah. Well, and I just want to say to your point about the police stepping in. I think that there is room for surveillance before arrest. I don't have any problem with surveillance of white nationalist groups online. And I don't have any problem with you being swept up in that surveillance without making a threat. 
Now, that's not to say I think you should be arrested for interacting with the group or everyone who puts up a website should be arrested. But I don't have any problem with surveillance of fascist white supremacist groups. That doesn't mean I think everybody who interacts with them should be arrested and that the police should step in and limit their rights. But I don't have any problem with surveillance. I think that's different on the Internet than in someone's house. Like tapping someone's cell phone to me is different than their Internet interactions, because I don't think any of us have a reasonable expectation of privacy on the Internet. No. But I think if you're forming a fascist group or a white supremacist group and they send an undercover officer in there to surveil the group, I don't have any beef with that. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, 
Whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Do you feel the same way about communism? I mean, see, when, it's like this is where it gets. No, really I don't. I dangerous. mean, if you have a, if you have a, if you have a political ideology, and I'm talking about historically. I mean, historically during the Cold War, then communism was a threat, and groups within the country were a threat. And that's not again not that we're not arresting you, we're not firing you, but political groups involved. I mean, if there were communist groups. During the Cold War, I don't know, maybe I've watched too much Americans, the television show, but I don't I mean, I don't think that when you're engaged with what we were engaged with, with the Soviet Union and you and you know, you have intelligence that these groups are linked to the Soviet Union and that they have certain objectives. I mean, now would you have problems with groups being surveilled from Russia I mean, I guess that's the distinction, right? Are we talking about political groups linked to a nation? Or are we talking about just political groups forming to discuss political ideologies? Maybe that's the distinction we're talking about. Because, it, you know, during the 1960s, you had groups infiltrated with Soviet spies or Soviet nationals. Then, yeah, I don't mind if our spies are in there, too. But if you're talking about today, do I want the intelligence agency stepping into any, you know, democratic socialist group. No, but I don't think I don't have problems drawing those distinctions as they come because I think they're different. And I think any reasonable person can see the difference between democratic socialist and fascist or white nationalist. This is the conflict that you and I always come to. This is one of our central conflicts, I think, because while I agree that they are different, I think I fall into the reasonable person category and can see the difference there. I also think that when we bring the tools of the state to solving a problem, those differences can be erased very quickly. I don't see a legal system that's really great at those nuances, and I always see the risk of power coming to bear. And that is what I am worried about right now. I don't think the way the president talks about Antifa is appropriate, and I fear the consequences of that, and I fear the precedent that that sets. I mean, I guess I what I feel like is that when you're talking about fascism, maybe what we need to decide is that we're not talking about a political ideology. It's not really a political ideology. It's a security threat. And I don't have any problem saying, and I think maybe the reason fascism continues to be a threat is because we can't seem to make that distinction. And we do want to continue to treat it as the same as communism or the same as socialism. And it's just not. It's not. And I think that's honestly what, especially the people, if you look back in history with the beginning of the anti-fascist movement, we're arguing is that this isn't just this isn't just a political ideology. We can all vote up or down. This is a real threat. These are people that exploit our government and people's fears and racism and every other terrible instinct inside the human consciousness to do real harm. 
And so, I mean, I don't know. I think it's a real struggle to distinguish instead of just placing on the spectrum and treating it like every other political ideology. I think in order to do that, we all have to kind of reignite our commitment to being in a classical liberal democracy. And I think we're losing that in the conversation. I think we lose that in the way the media covers these events. I think we lose that in the way elected representatives talk about them. This weekend, I spent a whole bunch of time pulling weeds out of the area where my girls have their play set. And I had been like looking at that area all summer and just not seeing the weeds. You know, I just saw the swing set and them having a good time. And when I started looking at the weeds, I realized like, wow, this has become overgrown and a complete disaster. And so I spent hours out there and my hands are like filled with thorns and dirt stained. I mean, it was a mess. And while I was pulling those weeds, I thought like, this is such a good metaphor for how I look at American government right now, because I think for a long time, a lot of people with life experiences similar to mine have just taken for granted open society, rule of law, separation of powers, free and fair elections. And I think a lot of what these clashes highlight is that we cannot take those things for granted, that these truths are not self-evident and they never have been. And a lot of the work of our generation is to humbly get down on our knees and try to pull this stuff out. And there are lessons that I'm learning that I know have been apparent to people of color and Native people forever, you know, but they're, they're new lessons for me. And it's important for me to be humble about it and to try to get down here and do the work. And that work for me does not look like putting on all black and taking a baseball bat into the street, but it does look like being willing to shame people for what they believe and to say that this whole Proud Boy situation is disgusting. It's unacceptable. It is a threat to our national security, and they are not the only group by a long shot involved in that. And we have to do something about it. And I get kind of discouraged because I was thinking as I was pulling those weeds that like the weeds in our democracy right now have such deep roots and the field is so much bigger than what seems to be achievable in our lifetimes. But I just feel like that's our generation's work. The one thing we can learn from Antifa is exactly what you just said. I think so often what they're arguing through tactics many of us disagree with is someone else is not going to come and save us. We cannot depend on the government or the police or the intellectual elite to banish fascism or white supremacy from our midst, but it is the work of all of us. And I think that's exactly what you're describing with the weeding process. And if we can look at these clashes and try to, you know, be curious and listen to what's underneath them is people, particularly young people, saying, I'm tired of waiting for someone else to get rid of this real threat. And so if all of us can step forth, like you see in these amazing protests in Hong Kong, the protest this weekend was massive and there was also almost no violence. And so I think when you when groups like Antifa can see that there is, you know, a massive shift and a desire among 
the majority to do just what you're saying to weed out our democracy, to pay attention to these threats, then they'll die down. And so I hope that's what we begin to see, that we see people no longer feeling like they have to depend on violence in order to combat fascism. By some estimates, I saw like 22 percent of people in Hong Kong participated in nonviolent protests over the weekend. Think about what would happen if one in five Americans said, we will not tolerate white supremacy in this country. We will do it nonviolently. We will respect your right to show up and have your little gathering. But what we're telling you is we don't want you in our workplaces. We don't want this in our schools. We don't want this in our civic organizations and our churches. And we certainly don't want it in the halls of Congress and in the White House. If one in five people said that, I do think that Antifa would recede into the background. I think you're right, Sarah. And so I think that is our our call to action here, that we all care about this and we care about it in the classically liberal way so that people with baseball bats don't have to be clashing with these jokers in Portland. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? I read this really fascinating article in The Atlantic about Joe Rogan. I'm sort of in the podcasting space, right? We just got back from podcast movement, and The Atlantic is asking, why do so many people listen to Joe Rogan, who makes lots and lots of very long podcasts every week? And I thought it was so interesting, and this relates really well to what we were just talking about, but there's a paragraph from this article that I just had to share. The writer says, the bedrock issue is Rogan's courting of a middle bro audience that the cultural elite hold in particular contempt, guys who get barbed wire tattoos and fill their fridge with monster energy drinks and pre-order their tickets to see Hobbs and Shaw. Joe loves these guys, and his affection has none of the condescension and ironic distance many people fall back on in order to get comfortable with them. He shares their passions and enthusiasms at a moment when the public dialogue has branded them childish or problematic or a slippery slope to Trumpism. Like many of these men, Joe grumbles a lot about political correctness. He knows that he is privileged by virtue of his gender and his skin color, but in his heart, he is sick of being reminded about it. Like a lot of other white men in America, he is grappling with the growing sense that the term white man has become an epithet. And like other men in America, not just the white ones, he's reckoning out loud with a fear that the word masculinity has become by definition definition toxic. This profile is a really complex look at Joe Rogan. What really struck me about it is sort of the power of someone who makes a podcast and who sits down and has this conversation. His audience is the size of the population of Florida. You know, it's a lot of people tuning in to listen to him. And he talks about like there isn't an, a central animating issue. It's just him, right? And it's whatever it is that he represents. So it's not my cup of tea. And I think it's highly problematic in so many ways. And I also think it is worth understanding. So I really recommend this Atlantic profile because it is not like a glowing piece or a hit job. It is just saying there's something going on here that we need to pay attention to. The only thing I'd push back a bit against is I think... S- Some of what's going on is that he was just in the space first and did it well and did it often enough. He built a huge audience, um, built a lot of trust with that audience, that audience that overlaps a lot with people that were using that technology in the early days anyway. And so, I don't know, I'm a little suspicious of the idea that he's like a cultural movement because I think so much of that is timing. But whatever. If you need, let me tell you what I'm thinking about. If you need a palate cleanser after hearing about the Proud Boys and 
the three percenters and Joe Rogan, which I don't mean to link together. I'm not trying to be ugly. But if you need a palate cleanser from all that masculinity, may I direct you to the high women? Okay, so in the 70s, there was a super group of men, Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, and Willie Nelson. They called themselves the highwaymen. They were fine. Okay, so now we have an answer to the highwaymen. It is Brandi Carlisle, Natalie Hemby, Maren Morris, and Amanda Shires. They've only released three songs from their debut album. I have been listening to them on repeat consistently for the last two days. It's so good. Have you listened to the three songs yet, Beth? I've just listened to the one that you um, lovingly forced on me in our hotel room while we were traveling mm-hmm. together. It's called The High Women. It's the title track. It's a rewrite with the original songwriter from the Highway Men's song, which was cheesy. This one's amazing. It tells the women, the story of all these women who have died crossing the border, a woman in the Salem Witch Trials, a freedom rider. Oh, God. It's just Yolanda Carter. No, wait. Is that her name? Yola. Sorry. Yola Carter. Guest stars on it. Cheryl Crow sings in the background. I don't even know how to express to you how powerful these songs are. I emailed my friend and was like, when am I going to stop crying while listening to songs? So there's The High Women. There's a song called Crowded Table, co-written by Lori McKenna, who's an amazing songwriter about, oh, you got to listen to this one, Beth. It's so good. It's like, everyone's welcome at my table. We're all broken, but we all belong. Look, I'm like tearing up just talking about it. It's so good. And then there's a song called Redesigning Women, which, let's just be honest, right in the title, they got me. And it's, the video's amazing. It's such a like great upbeat song about the ways um, femininity is changing. And I just can't say enough about it. If the rest of the album is anywhere near as good as the first three songs they've released, Lord in heaven, save me. It's all I'm going to be listening to for the rest of this year. The High Women, y'all, go check it out. We will be back here with you on Friday with five things you need to know about the border crisis. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.